Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller. My guest today is from Richmond, Virginia. Her name is Brianna Diaz, and she is Policy and Legislative Counsel with the Virginia ACLU. They have lots of top issues. One of the ones I know is the abortion issue and what's happened since the Dobbs decision. Welcome, Brianna Diaz, to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with what is the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union? We are we the American Civil Liberties Union of Virginia. So we're the Virginia affiliate um, of the national organization. And we have been active in Virginia for 50 or so years. Um, and we are a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit organization that fights for the civil liberties and civil rights of all people uh, via a spectrum of tactics, including litigation, as I'm sure most folks are familiar with, public policy, communications, and organizing. When you say individual rights, refine that a little bit because it covers such a broad range of things. We are a multi-issue organization. And so, you know, right now, uh, when we talk about individual rights, what the ACLU of Virginia uh, fights for is reproductive freedom, LGBTQ rights, uh, criminal legal reform, um, immigration rights and issues, um, and, and truly so much more. The biggest thing we're known for, uh, First Amendment rights, so whether that's freedom of speech, uh, assembly, religion, or otherwise. You know, and it might be good to point out that when you talk about freedom of speech, that really does mean for everybody, because I know that one of the big historical issues or legal issues with the ACLU was defending the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois. But I know that in Southwest Virginia, you also defended some kids who wanted to have a Christian club when the other clubs met in the schools. The ACLU of Virginia, when we say that we fight for everybody's First Amendment rights, um, we do mean everybody. Let's go to the rights of women. Most people delighted or depressed over the Dobbs decision which overturned a 50-year precedent of Roe v. Wade and allowed women legal abortions in the country. So where do things stand now with the new Dobbs decision? With Dobbs, um, it struck down or it overturned Roe v. Wade um, and Casey v. Planned Parenthood, which were foundational Supreme Court cases that set at the federal level the rights to abortion or um, right to abortion and, and access um, to a degree. What this has done in, in effect is relegated abortion, the legality of abortion and accessibility to the states. It was defined by the federal government and now it's defined by the states. So why would that be a bad thing? First of all, it's eradicated a fundamental right to bodily autonomy in, in our opinion. Right. We believe that everybody has the right to decide for themselves when they get pregnant, whether they keep a pregnancy as, you know, that can have a profound impact on one's life. Um, and so any any way for the state or others to intervene in someone's fundamental right to, of bodily autonomy to dictate their pregnancy and life course, um, I think is a stain on this country. And so we are deeply concerned with the impact that overturning Roe and Casey will have across the country. One is that erosion of bodily autonomy. I think two is now it's left us in a patchwork. Um, we have almost half, if not more, uh, of U.S. states that have trigger our tra uh, trigger laws that essentially ban abortion um, across the country. That leaves millions of people with the capacity to be pregnant, um, left with little little um, opportunity to seek 
abortion or other reproductive health care services. And so I think it has a real chilling effect on um, what people can and want to do with their lives. Well, we can see that different states have vastly different levels of control, and that's a historical thing. How would you put uh, this issue in context? What do we see when we look in history about what the states do when they have the latitude and the freedom as opposed to the federal government? I think a really good example uh, of this could be with same-sex marriage. Um, I think another example could be that in where you know, gosh, maybe seven or eight years ago before marriage equality was law of the land, we saw a patchwork where LGBTQ couples, uh, their marriages were recognized in some states or some circuit court jurisdictions, but not others. And so just imagine, you know, I can speak for myself, I'm from Texas. And when Obergefell became law of the, or Windsor became law of the land, um, I was in Texas where my partner and I could not get married. But when we moved to DC, only two months later, um, we could get married. (laughs) And so I think that patchwork of depending on where you live, whether you have access to certain services or recognition under law um, can vastly change uh, your life experience. The first example I always think of is slavery, you know, that the question Mm -hmm. of states' rights, that the states wanted the right to have slaves, and and those other things that you mentioned, we can also see great disparity in the way different states handled it until the federal government took over or had some kind of federal legislation. Brianna Diaz from the ACLU, you mentioned, and we hear it mentioned constantly, overturned Roe and Casey. Roe, as I understand it, was basically saying you have a right to privacy with your family, your doctor to make the decision and no state, no government can intervene. It's it's a personal decision of privacy. Is that right? And what was Casey? That is correct. Um, and that Roe v. Wade expand, like, named building upon a previous Supreme Court case of Griswold um, that did find a right to privacy and mandated that contraception um, is accessible, that folks have a right to contraception, that's birth control and other forms. Um, Roe was built on top of that, uh, I think, precedent setting case, um, you know, further identifying a right to privacy in via having an abortion. And as you said, that that decision be made with the, indiv- the individual pregnant person, their doctor, and whoever else that they want to bring in, but isn't up to the state. So that was that was funda- uh, a fundamental case. And then for Casey, that chipped away uh, a little bit at what Roe set up of you know setting terms of when one can have an abortion. And Roe, it was a uh, fetal viability test, um, and we saw in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, leading between Roe and Casey, we saw states introduce bills um, and enact laws that try to erode access to abortion. So that could have been, you know, whether states set a limit of rather than fetal viability, we set a limitation on 20 weeks, 22 weeks, or, you know, do, does someone have to get an ultrasound unless they have some sort of biased counseling? We started seeing all these barriers occur uh, for individuals seeking abortion. And so what Casey did um, is change that standard of when an abortion or like what what laws can um, can be passed that limit access to abortion. And so it went from age of fetal viability test to an undue burden. And so what Casey established was if a law has, provides an undue burden on an individual seeking an abortion, that law is unconstitutional. 
Um, and so it really was a new test that many uh, laws had to be put up against to test their constitutionality. And so that informed a lot of the stuff that we saw happening around Texas um, prior to the Dobbs case where efforts to dictate, you know, size of abortion clinics, um, where they could be built, all those things were struck down as undue burdens under the Casey test. Okay, got it. Now we have just been very thorough in the legal aspects of this. Let me just hear it from you straight up. How frightened are you? How upset are you? And is the ACLU about these changes? We are devastated by these changes. As, as the organization that has championed uh, the rights to abortion, you know, uh, I think some people don't know this, but Justice Ginsburg worked for the ACLU as one of the founders of our Women's Rights Project at the National um, ACLU. And so when we think of civil rights and civil liberties and the right to an abortion, it is near and dear to our organization's heart. Um, and so we are devastated. Um, for this outcome and are terrified for the impact it will have on millions of people who can get pregnant across the country. And I personally, as someone who has the capacity to get pregnant, as, am definitely concerned with what this means for me in certain situations, um, whether I will have access to an abortion and you know where, where this leads to, whether this decision leads to further erosion of other rights that I currently uh, have. You know, it really is a complex decision and the rights of an individual to make the decision versus the right of the government to tell a woman what to do is complicated. What do you say to the arguments on the other side? The One of the ones that I saw recently was it's not your right to your body. It's the right of the baby to be born. We know uh, scientifically and medically uh, that <laughs> um, folks are um, are capable of making decisions for themselves on whether they want to stay pregnant, that nobody should be in a forced pregnancy. And that honestly, it goes beyond just that. Again, it, I think it goes back to bodily autonomy and one's ability to make decisions for themselves. I know, Brianna Diaz, that your title is Policy Legislation and Counsel. What is the difference between the policy side of things at the Virginia ACLU and the legal side? How do you separate those? My day-to-day -day work is focused on, um, I would say, legislative advocacy. So, you know, very active in monitoring uh, bills that are introduced in the General Assembly, speaking with legislators, our members, and other impacted folks about uh, bills, how they impact them, how to testify and get engaged with the legislative process. So I say that's part of my job. And policy is overall, you know, a set of principles, rules, laws that we hope to see um, enshrined in Virginia uh, at every level, local or state. I advocate fiercely uh, for, for them to come to fruition. Oh, beautiful. Now let's follow up on that. What do you mean you advocate fiercely? You shove yes. legislators up against the wall and say, you listen to me. I, I mean, sometimes I feel that way, especially with, with my personality, but it's more so conversations. Uh, believe it or not, it is really, truly a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with legislators or constituents, um, in particular legislators' districts. It's a lot of storytelling, um, trying to make someone understand the impact of their legislation, good or bad, that it can have on an individual, um, empowering that individual to share their story um, so that legislator knows what they're doing. Um, 
I think that's one form is that constituent lobbying that we help facilitate. I think another form of fiercely advocating is public education. As I said, as you know, the general, our general assembly sessions are, are short, quick, and there's a lot happening. And I think it's really easy for people to get disconnected or overwhelmed with what's happening like what bills that are impacting their lives are being heard. And so I like to uh, participate in uh, webinars and like other types of like, town halls and many other sessions to connect people, um, you know, advocates, grassroots advocates and constituents, um, connect them with what's happening and how they can take action. So I think it's, uh, it's both both my fiercely advocating work happens facing legislators, but also happens facing directly impacted people. All right, Brianna Diaz, Virginia ACLU, <laughs> let's get real here. Contacting the legislators. What a joke. They've all made up their minds, right? I mean, what chance do you have to persuade anybody in the legislature? Oh, wow. I hear that so often. And I, I completely understand. <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. Um, I would say you would be surprised at the amount of legislators who don't often hear from their constituents on particular issues, right? I think we, I think it's important that while I understand where that sentiment is coming from, I 100% know where that sentiment is coming from. I still think it's important that where we have opportunities um, to call, to text, <laughs> literally you can text, uh, call, email, um, at on Twitter or social media, your legislator to make to make them know how you feel about an issue, right? Like abortion, um, make them know why that issue is important to you, why they should support they should support keeping abortion legal in Virginia, and maintain that that contact and information that back and forth. Um, I think people would be shocked to know uh, that if they reach out to their legislator, they're very likely to hear a response. Well, okay, let me continue my cynicism. One of those form letter responses that the staff oh, sends yeah. out and that they don't even hear. Yeah, I love it when you get it from the intern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing that you might want to talk about, and I assume you bring this up when you're talking to legislators, is that there's a clear and strong majority in this country that mm -hmm. wants rights to abortion, not to have, as you say, a forced pregnancy. <laughs> but does, but the legislators choose their voters these days. And so it's, they don't even answer to the people. Yeah, I, I yeah. How's that for a cynical that. comment? No, 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 no. I, sometimes I think cynicism is just realism. <laughs> You're fine. No, but I think that's a fine point to bring. And one that I think we need to harp on, we, I, that, that reminds me of a comment that Governor Youngkin made. You know, he has formed um, a, a working group of four legislators to draft a 15-week abortion ban. And his statement um, and many interviews that he's given since creating this work group to post this ban is, you know, Virginians as a whole want less abortions. Like Virginians don't support abortion, but we have polling after polling after polling. Just, I mean, we have at least two, three polls conducted this year alone. Most recently, one by Repro, uh, Reproductive Rising, Karen Action, um, indicating that no, actually 77% of Virginians believe that pregnant decisions about pregnancy should be made by the pregnant person and not politicians. You um, know, that's a fine line there too, because when people say they support abortion, they're really, I think this is a big broad statement for me, but it seems that they're more likely to be objecting to what you called forced abortion, 
nobody wants people to have abortions. I mean, I'm, I don't know. Do you meet with people who go hooray for abortion? Um, I find that always such an interesting framing. Uh, speaking speaking for myself and in, 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 in my interaction in the repro, repro justice movement is that there is a lot of stigma associated with abortion where we tend to rely on these talking points or framing that abortion is bad and nobody wants abortion. And I think that fuels a lot of misinformation, stigma, and shame for folks that have sought out abortion or who have had abortions. And so I, I like to view this as if people want to have an abortion, they should have the ability to have safe and legal abortions, um, period. I, I think falling into the trap uh, that abortion is a negative and that we want less of them is feeding into, uh, again, a, an understanding of abortion that is rooted in misinformation and shame. Um, well, how do you feel about the Yunkin or how does the organization feel about the Yunkin discussion of 15 weeks? Well, we are not excited. We do not support a 15-week abortion ban whatsoever. Um, we, we support the current uh, law. <laughs> um, you know, just last session, we saw a 20-week abortion ban introduced in the 2022 legislative session by Senator Chase. And that, that failed. That failed in the Senate. And the House also had a similar bill set to be introduced. And they pulled it because they knew it was dead on arrival. And so I'm thinking if we can't even get a 20 week abortion bans because Virginians do not support 20 week abortion bans, why do we think a 15 week abortion ban that would further limit access to abortion? I'm curious what the, what the governor and his working group thinks, uh, why that will be successful. Um, but no, we do not support a 15 week abortion ban. So what you're describing is that Virginia has legal abortion now. And yes. you, you sound confident that a ban on abortions before 20 weeks, you sound confident that since that didn't pass, that abortion may be safe in Virginia. That seems like that's a very open question in terms of upcoming elections. And Why I might sound confident about this 15-week abortion ban or really any abortion ban. We also have two members who want to introduce life at conception, so absolute bans on abortion. Um so we, we know of at least three abortion bans being introduced this year, but I feel confident in their failure because, um, you know, these bills will have to go through the Senate where there is a reproductive champion uh, majority, a slim one, but it is there. Um, and these bills will have to go through um, one particular committee, the Senate um, Health and Education Committee that Senator Lucas chairs. Um, and these bills will very likely face a quick death. Um, once they hit that Senate committee. Um, and so I feel very confident in our reproductive champion uh, legislators in the Senate and those in the House that are fighting tooth and nail where they can. And I'm also just confident in our, and again, in Virginians. I feel like if we are able to contact our legislators, show up in the session and testify against these, these terrible abortion bans, we will put the governor um, and anti-abortion legislators on notice that no, Virginians want abortion uh, to be legal. We want safe legal abortions in Virginia, and we will not allow anything to, to roll that back. Well, what are you seeing in terms of actions in the states that have gone to abortion bans or stricter regulations on abortion? There was a story about a 10-year-old getting pregnant mm -hmm. and not being able to get a legal safe abortion in the state where the child lived. And then there was a story 
um, people were saying that story was just not true. That did not happen. So what do you know about that situation? I am actually unfamiliar with that situation. So I'm not able to, I think, comment as fully as I would like to. All right, let's, let me rephrase the question then. Um, what do you, what do you know about what's happening in other states in terms of the legality or what's happening to women and girls who cannot, uh, ha cannot have the rights that they had just a few months ago? I, thank you. Um, so what we're hearing is, you know, a lot of anecdotal experiences. Um, I think back to, again, I'm a, I'm from Texas originally, a state that has, or, you know, banned abortion. Um, and I, I'm thinking of people who are now terrified about their appointments that were canceled, or if they're ever in a situation where they need to access reproductive health care like abortion, you know, what, what can they do? Um, and so I'm hearing a lot of anecdotal stories around the canceled appointments and trying to seek an appointment elsewhere and being unable to book an appointment in time to get their abortion or um, lacking the resources, financial transportation support at home to be able to, you know, go out of state for an abortion. Like that is the reality that we are in now, um, unfortunately. And, and it's, it's very upsetting to see. And so I think that's why you know, another reason why it's important that Virginia remain a, an abortion safe haven, that abortion remain legal and safe here is because, you know, we will start to see folks from out of state come here for those services. We're talking about restricted rights to abortion and where the abortions are made illegal, you're talking a crime. Does that open up women and doctors to arrest? Have we seen anything that suggests that that would really happen? I believe that criminalization is unfortunately always an option, right? Where states have criminalized, um, whether it's a medical provider um, providing abortions, whether it's someone aiding or abetting abortion, so that's someone trying to help another person uh, seek and get access to abortion services. Criminalization is always something to be aware and fearful of, as we know that it will have a disproportionate impact on already marginalized communities. I'm thinking rural folks, low-income folks, black and brown communities, LGBTQ communities, and, and so many more folks who are already over like disproportionately policed, surveilled, and criminalized, right? And so that is a real fear that we have, especially in surrounding states to Virginia, that will seek to, if they already don't have in place criminalization laws, will seek to impose them. And spread them to those who seek abortion uh, care in Virginia. It's definitely something we're concerned with. You had mentioned, I just bring this up because of just how uh, far to one side the issue goes when you talk about people who want to say that from the moment of conception, the moment the sperm hits the egg, that's a human right. And that if somebody is driving and kills a woman who's pregnant, that there would be murder charges for two. I also heard a story of some woman, I don't know if this is true, but it's a fascinating story, that she got pulled over in the HOV lane. And um, was, Texas woman. Oh, is that true? Did that really happen? Yeah. <laughs> so in the that HOV lane, which means high occupancy vehicle, which means you can't be in this lane unless you've got another passenger. And she claimed that because she was pregnant, she could be in the HOV lane. 
Yeah, that was a woman in Texas who did that. And she said, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> and you're in there with the power people, Brianna Diaz of the Virginia ACLU. How did you come to this position, to this actual uh, job that you have? And where, where were the passions that drove you? What activated you to become part of the ACLU? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I'm going to try my best to keep brief. I have been driven to this work based on my lived experience um, as a queer, gender diverse uh, person of color, uh, daughter, or sorry, I'm getting out of that, that feminization language. Um, as a child of immigrants, I, I have had a very unique lived experience, uh, again, also from Texas, um, that deeply informed how I show up in the world. And <laughs> I think being who I am and being out at such a young age really in, um, influenced my lived experience and uh, I think awoke the young advocate in me. And that led me to advocate fiercely for folks like me. Um, and I'm very grateful that to now be a Virginian, I've uh, been here for three years, don't plan on leaving. <laughs> um, when the opportunity arose to work with the ACLU of Virginia, just a historic organization, you know, they're the ones who litigated Loving vs. Virginia. Which made it acceptable for interracial marriages. Exactly. Loving My parents' marriage legal. Um, and, and so much more. And so there's just this deep values and lived experience connection that I have with being a legislative and policy advocate and doing so for the ACLU of Virginia in particular. Give us some specifics, Brianna. Are you really telling us that you're not a danger to America? I mean, <laughs> what, did, what did people say to you? What were the difficulties that you faced? Happy to unpack that. So I... I came out at a very young age. I came out at 13 years old um, as lesbian or gay. And I was one of the first openly gay people at my school. Openly, I say openly, because I was with, with being openly authentic with who you are, um, I think in a really conservative environment where people just don't understand or know other LGBTQ folks, it really opened up an environment that was not safe affirming or inclusive for who I was. And so what that looked like was, you know, getting kicked out of school. Um, being you got harassed. kicked out of school? Yeah, I was for being a lesbian and talking about I, it. I mean, yeah, I, uh, I helped co-found when our school, one of our school's first gay straight alliances, or now they're called like gender and sexuality alliances or GSAs. And our school wouldn't let us be in the yearbook. They wouldn't let me go to prom. With, and then they were, oh yeah, I can't, couldn't wear shirts with rainbows or like the word gay on it. Yeah, that was the face I made. Um, and so it was very interesting just trying to live authentically to do the same things that my cisgender and heterosexual peers were doing, like literally going to prom. Like, and I never got that experience because I wasn't allowed to take the person that I was dating. It was a woman. And so they said, no, can't come here. And so those small interactions, I mean, they, they're not small, but I think sometimes people make them seem small, but they really profoundly impact one's ability to live a full, authentic and safe life. So that's just one example. <laughs> wow. Well, I would love to hear more, but <laughs> let's wrap this up with some kind of summary. What would you want people to know or do? Yes. Thank you so much. Um, so now is a time to take action. Uh, there's so much that you can do now before the legislative session. Please visit the ACLU of Virginia's website. We have launched an abortion action uh, hub outlines, uh, you know, the current legal status of abortion. 
um, and at, uh, many upcoming events. There's a lot of rallies still happening that you can attend if you would like to be with community. And there's a uh, an action alert you can fill out that will email your legislator, your delegate, and your senator um, demanding that they keep abortion legal and safe in Virginia. Um, start there. Join our listserv if you're not already on it to stay up to date for many opportunities um, in the coming General Assembly uh, session and to to be aware of what's going on. Thank you so much. My guest today, Brianna Diaz of the Virginia ACLU. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you, listeners. Please stay tuned to 90.7. You can Google this conversation, WEHC, find our podcast, or go to wehcfm.com. Go to talk shows and find the archives there. Thanks again, and please stay tuned.